You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode number 60. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Tracy, and I'm doing a solo episode of Therefore a Geek today, and I'm talking about Lord of the Rings. We haven't talked a lot about uh, Lord of the Rings, which is one of my favorite both book series and my all-time favorite movie series uh, here on Therefore a Geek that much. We spend a lot of time talking about comics, uh, which is fantastic, and those are a lot of fun, but this happens to be something that is near and dear to my heart. So every year on my birthday, I do a full marathon of the Lord of the Rings movies, and I've read the books, I think, three or four times. And when I say the books, I'm talking about specifically Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. And I've also, of course, read The Silmarillion uh, one and a half times. I keep getting distracted by other things. Usually what keeps happening, or it has happened for the last few years while I've been in school, is that I'll start reading The Silmarillion again because it's just so fun. It flows so beautifully. And then the end of whatever break I'm on, winter break, summer break, whatever, ends and I'm only halfway through it. And then I have to start reading for class again. Fortunately, that's no longer a problem. This last week was my birthday, so I did my usual, my annual rewatch of the movies, and again, I'm struck, and this may just be nostalgia, but to me, I feel like they hold up really, really well, and some of that is due to the, really the love, the care that was put into the special effects and the practical effects on the movies, but then again, there were some things that popped out to me, I think, more now than they did maybe when I, they first came out, of course, and I'll be dating myself a little bit, but I was definitely in my early teens when the first, when the Fellowship of the Ring first came out. So a lot has changed since then in terms of CGI and special effects. So of course, some things are going to be different, but again, well, these are, these are my favorite movies. And I, really loved the care that Peter Jackson and the entire crew put into in the cast as well um, put into the movies and clearly you can tell that they loved the source material. I will say that this podcast is not going to be a comprehensive overview of the of the books or the movies. It, we'll just probably spend about 25-30 minutes talking about them and I honestly am not any kind of Lord of the Rings expert. I'm simply somebody who really loved them. There are a lot of places that you can go on the internet and you can read some of the most in-depth fan analyses of, I mean, these people have put more effort into this than probably any type of religion. And that's fantastic. It's It really works well. Um, but I'm not one of those people. I can definitely throw some links in the show notes if you are a big Lord of the Rings buff or you want to know a little bit more about the world or the lore of the place of Middle Earth, then uh, you can definitely check that out. As far as my love affair with J.R.R. Tolkien, it started... I read The Hobbit, I think, when I was eight or nine years old, so I was I was quite young. And it's marketed and written for someone of roughly that age, so that was about the right time. However, 
I was always a little precocious, or at least I thought I was. So I ended up reading The Fellowship of the Ring when I was 11 years old for the first time. And it took me almost a full year to get through it. I started and stopped on Concerning Hobbits several times before I realized that I could actually skip that part, read through, get really into the meat of the story, and then come back and read it, which is what I ended up doing. And then in the next couple of years, I managed to get through The Two Towers and The the Return of the King as well. And honestly, I was way too young. I had the reading comprehension skills that I needed, but I didn't have the life experience that I needed. And every time I've read these books since then, I have gleaned so much more wisdom and respect for the author. There's so many layers of information given. As for the movies, the first movie came out when I was 15 and I was obsessed. It was perhaps the first big fantasy production that I had ever seen. I mean, I had not had, I was about the right age to start realizing what technical properties go into making a movie. And these were the biggest thing that had ever been made. It was stunning to me to read magazine articles back before you could read a whole lot online. It took so long to download even just a page of anything with that was graphics heavy on our 54k uh, dial-up connection. So to learn about Weta workshops and the care that they took in forging every single piece of metal so that there were no odd shapes that machines can make but human hands cannot, to know about the massive computer systems that they had to create in order to render some of these amazing objects and these amazing battles just absolutely blew me away and I found myself enthralled in every aspect of movie creation, casting, costuming. This was my first real understanding of the world of cinema and I loved it. So subsequent years um, the two towers came out and then return of the king and i was completely immersed in that world and that in a huge way is why they've impacted me enough that i keep going back year after year there are a lot of differences between the books and the movies of course some of them i thought were perfectly fine i never was one to be bothered by the depiction of faramir and the difference between the man who was tempted by the ring to go and take it to his father in Gondor. I never particularly liked Faramir in the books. He didn't affect me one way or the other. And in this way, I think we got a little bit more nuanced view of Boromir. Because in The Fellowship of the Ring, really all you see is corruption. It's him wanting to take the ring to Gondor as a a gift and as a weapon. And of course, us as viewers and as readers, we realize that that's not feasible. This is this is something that was forged in evil. It is an evil object. It's going to turn whoever holds it evil. And if we didn't know that already, we get an, a good view of Galadriel uh, refusing to take it being tempted by it and refusing to take it. And then his struggle gets increasingly complicated as he is a member of the Fellowship trying to take this ring to Mordor and to throw it back into Mount Doom, culminating in him trying to steal the ring from Frodo and then 
dying in sacrifice to rescue Mary and Pippin. And while we get that scene, and, and The Fellowship of the Ring as a movie, to me, is the most true to the books, not just in plotline and story, but also in its heart. It really, it exemplifies what I think Tolkien imagined. Even though Frodo is younger than he is in the books. I mean, in the books he's in his 50s, but it makes sense. I mean, from a from a movie storytelling point of view, you're looking at either portraying Frodo in his 50s, which will appeal to the diehards, perhaps the people that first read The Lord of the Rings when they initially came out, or in its resurgence in the 70s. But it's not really going to appeal to the vast majority of moviegoers. They're going to go, they're going to not really relate to this person on the screen, and they're going to find that it's an interesting concept, but they're not actually going to feel Frodo's journey, Frodo's growth, Frodo's pain as much as if he is roughly a young person's age, which is about the time that a human person is having all these adventures anyway. So I don't mind that Frodo's age has been changed. I don't mind the depiction of Faramir. The problems that I had were primarily in The Return of the King. Arwen's weird connection to the ring and her imminent death if it were not destroyed is so poorly explained. And Again, as a fan, I've gone round and round about this in my own head, and I've tried to make sense of it. So there is a way that you continuously attach her to the ring based on the fact that she gave up her grace in the Fellowship of the Ring to Frodo to save him from the Morgul blade that was buried in his shoulder. Yes. Did she do that? She did. Yes. Elvish grace, their ability to live long she basically gave up her immortality and it worked out well for her because she happened to be in love with this guy that was mortal also she was still going to have a long life um and so was he he was um, a descendant of the dunedain so he was going to live a long time but eventually they were both going to die and that worked out well her attachment to the ring while the other elves were leaving middle earth it just it was so awkward and so strange and it made no sense cinematically or to uh, book readers. And the other big one that I really absolutely hated, I was so angry, was, is the moment when Frodo turns on Sam and tells him to leave. So this is another moment where it just simply doesn't make sense to me. There is, we've seen him lose weight. We've seen him go from being young and happy and really carefree. The joy on his face at Bilbo's 111st birthday. Um, even the that moment when he and Sam are walking through the corn and I'm, it, it just, again, I go back to the Fellowship of the Ring really embracing the heart of Tolkien's characters. He's happy, he's joyful, there's light in his eyes. And then the closer that he gets to Rivendell, the place where he meets Gandalf and they really realize that the fellowship is going to need to leave in order. I mean, he's going to have to be continue to be the ring bearer. It's not going to be safe in Rivendell. He starts to get more solemn, more grave. 
and in a way it parallels growing up but it's much much faster and much and he keeps going it gets gets darker then you're starting to see the weight of this thing both mentally and physically and i don't think that it and, and of course there was the running with shalab ungoliant in the caves um in the mountain where he's wrapped up and poisoned and goes limp and Sam has to rescue him. And I think that that would have been plenty of character development to show us what Frodo was going through. We did not have to see a moment when he turns on his best friend in favor of Smeagol of all people. And this is juxtaposed for me with the moment when Frodo turns to Sam and Frodo are talking about Smeagol, Gollum, and Frodo has this moment of clarity when he tells Sam that he needs to know that Smeagol can come back. And here's one of the things where I think Peter Jackson did such a great job in the Lord of the Rings movies, as perhaps opposed to the Hobbit movies, in that he doesn't beat his, his audience to death with a point that he wants to make. It's just this one moment when Frodo is saying, if Smeagol can't come back from this, then I can't. And I need to know that I'm going to survive this. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. But it's not repeated at all. There's no request for clarification. It's just a simple conversation. And then they move on. And it, it just it smacks you upside the head. And it really shows you what's going on inside Frodo's head. I do not believe that a complete betrayal of his best friend and then the turnaround is necessary either for Sam's character development or for Frodo's. There are also a couple of things that, so many of the digital effects actually do hold up, I think, but there are a few moments when there's significant green screen uh, that's very obvious. And one of those moments is in the Mines of Moria as they're first entering. It's pretty obvious green screen and then another big moment is um the fight for gondor the ride the last ride of the rohirrim as they come across the battlefield the sky is very clearly cgi however other things hold up so beautifully and again in the minds of moria the uh sea creature that we never fully see it's more of a glimpse is fantastic and looks completely real as do the oliphants um near mordor it and some of the moments in the fight for the city it just you know it has to be cgi you know it has to be computer generated and yet it doesn't it just absolutely doesn't look like it is The other, a couple of things that they left out of the movies that I think I'm torn on, one of which Andrew is going to hate me for saying is Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is a very, um, he's a character that seems to really divide fans of the movies and the books. So, I happen to think that he's perfectly okay, but most people either love him or they hate him. And it was a huge outcry that he was not included in the movies. He's sort of a separate character unto himself. He and his relationship with Goldberry, whatever you think of that, is very unusual. It's very strange. 
and it can be left out except that I think that the change from including the blades that Mary and Pippin receive as gifts from Galadriel as opposed to actually seeing them discover them in the in the Barrow Whites uh, in the Barrows um, fighting off the Barrow Whites it really reduces what they are capable of and it absolutely has a disconnect um, for especially for the audience that's never read the books from understanding exactly why Eowyn was able to kill the witch king at the end it had not not really that much to do with the fact that she was a woman and so she fulfilled the prophecy it was the fact that she was using Mary's blade which was buried with men who had fought off the nine kings back when they were still alive so it made sense that this blade would be designed much like the Morgul blades were designed to kill specific humans, these were actually designed to kill the Witch King and the uh, the rest of the um, Nine Kings before they became the Nazgul. It makes sense that it would be able to kill him by stabbing him in the eye. This isn't a huge point. It's not something that would absolutely break things for me. However, um, I definitely think that the narrative would be, have been better served including something about the Barrows, even if Tom Bombadil were still left out. I think that there was, since some of the, in, some of the storyline that was given to Bombadil was actually provided in the extended versions um, and ascribed to the Ents, I think it could have been included in some way uh, in a similar form. The other big shakiness that a lot of people have with, especially the Return of the King, is the multiple endings. Um, the screen going black in between, um, there being plenty of places where the narrative really should have closed and didn't. This doesn't bother me that much. Uh, I have to say, every time I watch these things, I end up crying for about the last 15 minutes of Return of the King, and it doesn't really matter where I am or whether I've seen the entire movie. In fact, when the DVDs first came out, I remember walking through Walmart and seeing, it, you know, they always play the most recent movie on DVD on these big screens. And they were playing the Return of the King, and they they did that for quite a while. And every time, I just end up crying. It was it. Jackson did an amazing job at fleshing out the characters and really making the audience feel what they were feeling. And it, it's something that is rare in movie making. It's hard to do. And he himself was not able to replicate it with The Hobbit. I don't have a whole lot to say about those movies. I My good friend Teresa actually wrote a blog post on that a little while ago for us here at Therefore a Geek, so I will link to that in the show notes. Um, but she and I have very similar thoughts on that, so I'll make sure that you're able to read that if you'd like. My final critique, these are never going to be, in my opinion, relegated to dustbins. I really hope that this is not... A franchise that is rebooted anytime soon. I don't think that you could surpass it, honestly. There are lots of fantasy series that are out there. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia have been attempted most recently. I didn't love their their takes on, on the books, but I think that that's something that you could maybe reboot, just because I don't think the movies were all that great. Lord of the Rings were done right, and it's time to just let those be what they are for now. So I don't have a whole lot to say about what I've been up to lately. I have been, well, before I get too far off of it, I 
as a birthday present, my brother actually gave me um, Tolkien, A Dictionary by David Day. And this is absolutely a beautiful book. Um, it's leather bound. It's in great, got an engraved color cover and gold leaf. And it has an absolutely gorgeous map of Middle Earth um, and the Undying Lands, both. You don't usually see that in a book, um, right inside the front cover. And it's just, it really is a dictionary of the terms from, and with, it, it's just absolutely beautiful, like multiple paragraph glossary um, definitions of so many different things. The um, I'm looking at just one of the pages and it's got Amanyar, the the, uh, the people of Amun, sorry. So I've got just absolutely gorgeous illustrations. This is just a beautiful book. And I didn't even know that this was, um, I didn't even know that this was out. So it was really, really nice to get this as a, as a gift. So I'm going to have a great time with that. And it's, a, it looks like it would be a fantastic companion if you've never read Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion, um, as a, just a good way to keep track of the different terms and the different names, because lots of characters have, multiple names are referred to in multiple ways, especially depending on um, the time period that it's being referred to. I've also been on a little bit of a zombie kick. I'm not a big zombie fan, but most recently I've been reading a book by Daniel W. Dresner called International Relations and Zombies. And it's a little bit of a um, a, a textbook type of thing. It's very thin. I, I recommend it if you have no real clear understanding of international relations as a concept, because that's really what it is. It's just taking the sort of the lens of zombie lore and applying it to how, it, how different countries would react if we were faced with this bizarre illness, virus, whatever. And then at the same time, I also just finished World War Z, which I had not read before. That's by Max Brooks, of course, and is not at all what I expected. I was imagining this as a a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more like non like fiction, and it read more like non. I mean, it's obviously made up. It's a made up story, and it's a made up situation. However, it reads like a historical drama, really. Highly recommend that one. It's not my usual, but sort of caught my attention. And I ended up sitting down and reading it in about nine hours, just straight through. So that's definitely something that I recommend. Um, and I've also, well, obviously I just watched Lord of the Rings, the series. Um, and I also picked up the most recent Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens on Blu-ray. I recommend that you get that. That's out in case you didn't already know that. Um, so that's on my list as well. And yeah, that about does it for everything I've been into lately. I hope you guys enjoyed my first solo attempt. Of course, if you like what we do, you can find us at thereforeigeek.com to read other blog posts and podcasts. You can find this podcast and others like it on iTunes, Stitcher, and now SoundCloud. Or also on Twitter and Instagram at thereforeigeek. And if you check out our SoundCloud listing, we actually have all of our old podcasts. So if you and on iTunes as well. So if you have not been able to listen since the beginning, or if you missed a couple, you're able to go back anytime that you would like to and listen to those. Once again, I'm Tracy, and you have been listening to Therefore I Geek.